We as humans excel in the art of longing. We know what it is to wish for better things. We know what it is to be discontent with our current things or our current situation and and long for new seasons, long for an event that would change our circumstances. We often long for the next phase of life. Perhaps you can relate. When will our kids finally be out of diapers? Or when will their sleep schedule allow us to return to some semblance of freedom? When will we finally have that new job that brings a level of flexibility and more money to spend while we are so flexible? And once we get that new job, we long for the day where that job won't be so stressful, where we'll get used to it and it'll be a little bit easier. Or we long for the day when we finally retire, where we don't have to work at all, where we'll be able to spend more time with those kids that now have children and diapers wishing those years away. Perhaps it is not a time of life, but simply things that we wish for. I think we can relate to this as well. That day when we'll have that new job, which will allow us to buy that new car. We dream of it. We know how it smells. We know how it accelerates. I'm guilty of this. Uh, Just recently uh, coming back from our leadership retreat with Pastor Jesse, we put my van into drive and the shifter disintegrated. Uh, And as we looked through the rubble of Cheerios and such, looking for the parts that would allow us to get back into park so that I could take my foot off the brake. I longed for a new car. We, all, we know what it's like to long for things, but so often we don't take the time to think about what it is about our current things or situation or what it is about us that causes these perpetual longings. And oftentimes thinking on these things tells us a lot more about ourselves than it does about the things that we don't have or the next season to come. We long for and fantasize about the future, but we rarely stop to reflect on why we are discontent in this moment. Why is it that we are always longing for the past, wishing for the present to move on, and yet always discontent with what comes in the future? Why is it that parents with teens long for diapers? Why is it that CEOs long for the simplicity of shift work? Why is it that retirees get part-time jobs? because they have too much time on their hands. If we never stop to assess the deeper reasons for our longings, we will always long for the wrong things and we will always be disappointed. Or we'll look back to the past with rose-colored glasses, wishing that we could have been content in the good old days. As the great theologian Andy Bernard from The Office famously says, I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. Well, my goal today is 
not to condemn longing. Although I, I think a dose of contentment would be good for each one of us. But the reality is, is there are not good old days. We're certainly not in them now. It does not take much to look around at our current situation and realize that things are not as they should be. But we so often lack the ability or are unwilling to give ourselves the time to consider why we are so unsatisfied and to consider what part we might have to play in the brokenness of the world that we find ourselves in. Well, Advent is that opportunity. We find ourselves in a time of, of waiting, waiting for the celebration of Christ's birth, that joyful time where we come together with families and celebrate. But, but we also recognize that our whole life is a life of Advent. It's a life of waiting. It's a life of longing, looking forward to Christ's second return in that last day where he brings us not cars or a new season of life, but he brings a new world, a new reality, something that we should truly long for. And our hope this morning and over the coming weeks is to consider these things, to yes, consider what it is to long well for what is to come, but also to consider why it is that we are so discontent with the life that we have. Well, in this morning's passage in Isaiah, we find Isaiah speaking to a people who have spent much time longing and yet have gotten much of what they hope for, a return to their homeland, a return from exile. King Cyrus has given them permission to head home and begin rebuilding. And yet the world around them is hardly what they expected. They find themselves still disappointed. So in our text this morning, I want to consider this lament of the prophet as he considers the world around him and considers that life is just not as it should be. And the first thing I want to consider this morning as we look at Isaiah 64 is a longing for judgment. Our passage begins like this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. It's an odd thing, isn't it? To pray for judgment. That seems counter, uh, counterintuitive for us, to desire for judgment, to pray for judgment. And yet that's exactly what the prophet is, is doing here. He looks at the nations around him particularly this nation that continues to rule over God's people. He sees their idolatry, which we see in the previous passage. He sees the injustice around him and he longs for things to be made right. And although I don't know that we use the same language in our own prayers, we, we can relate to this reality. The nations continue to rage around us, don't they? I mean, we look at the news cycle and we continue to see headlines day by day of civilian life being lost all over the world, the Middle East in particular right now. These shocking stories of, of women and children being held captive or, or worse. The reality is, is we don't have to look internationally, do we? We see 
in our own cities and neighborhoods the reality of the nations raging. We live in a time and day where perversion of God's desire for human sexuality is celebrated. And we long for justice. We long for righteousness. We long for these things to be made right. We hear constant reports of violence in our streets, violence in our homes. Statistically speaking, since we gathered here today, 70 unborn lives have been taken in our country alone. And we can think about that and truly long that God would come and make things right. The world around us rages with idolatry and adultery and murder. And we who have any sense of God's justice long for him to come and make things right. This is a good and holy longing. But it's also a terrifying one, isn't it? As we think about Isaiah's imagery, mountain shaking, brushwood lit aflame, a fire so hot that it causes the oceans to boil. That's what Isaiah is calling for. That this judgment would be of such force that it would go beyond Isaiah's own expectations of what God's judgment can look like, that he would come and do things that they would not expect. As verses four and five state that he would come, that God would come and work on behalf of those that wait in obedience on him. Those that in contrast to the nations that are raging, joyfully do that which is righteous. And the prophet recognizes that from old, God has been faithful and he always will be faithful to act for those who remember him. But as Isaiah muses upon God's judgment and all that is unrighteous and this world and the world around him, as he considers God's coming judgment upon all that is unclean, you'll notice that the prophet makes a turn inward. If first we see this longing for judgment, then we see this lament become very personal. Isaiah rightly recognizes what it requires to be on the winning side of God's judgment, doesn't he? He, he says, from days of old, Yahweh has worked on behalf of those who do three things, according to Isaiah. Those who wait for him, those who joyfully work righteousness, and those who remember him in all of their ways. Very much in line with the psalm that we sang this morning. This, this righteous man that we sang about does righteous deeds. He remembers, he meditates on God's law day and night. He does not scheme with the wicked, but waits upon the Lord. But Isaiah, seemingly out of nowhere in verse 5, shifts his tone, perhaps with Psalm 1 in the backdrop. And as he's calling for judgment upon the nations, he says this, behold, you were angry. As we've already considered, it's, it's, it's not a surprise that God is angry. As Isaiah considers the world around him, the injustice that he sees and the nations not waiting on the Lord, those who do not do righteous, those who have forgotten God. Yes, God is angry. Just like we would not be shocked to find out that God is angry at the injustice that is in our world right now. But what is surprising here is that Isaiah's 
turn is towards himself, towards God's own people. Behold, you are angry and we sinned, Isaiah says. He uses Hebrew parallel words here to say that that God who worked in days of old for eternity on behalf of his own, on one hand, but but now we are a people that from days of old sinned from the very beginning. Of course, this too is probably not a shock to us as we consider the history of Israel. In very recent history, God's people, even though returning to the land are already giving themselves to the idols that they heard about in Babylon. But it's no new problem. On their very wedding night, that night where God constituted the nation at Mount Sinai, they turn aside to worship a golden calf. It goes back further than that, doesn't it? As Adam and Eve receive God's law and instruction on Eden, that mountain, give to Adam and Eve creation as gift, his very word, his very instruction, they turn aside, they give themselves to another. Isaiah recognized the depth of the sin problem of his, of him and his kindred. And he laments, shall we be saved? Isaiah begins to use ceremonial language, temple language to describe the condition of his people. He says that we have all become like one who is unclean. And to be unclean would mean to not be able to enter God's presence, to not have access to the temple, to not have access to the worshiping community, to be ceremonially unpure would mean that God would hide from them as he goes on to say. And Isaiah says that we have all become unclean. Yes, we've talked about those nations that are certainly unclean. But as he looks to himself and his own people, he's like, it's true of all of us. We've become just like those nations. I think what is so interesting here in this passage though, is we would expect here that Isaiah would begin listing all of Israel's dirty deeds. Certainly there are many of them that we could think of. He's he's given quite a litany of them in preceding passages. But it's interesting here that he says that we have all become unclean and then goes on to say that all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Isaiah using fairly, fairly crass language here to speak of Israel's ceremonial impurity, but he speaks of it in relation to the things that they think are good about themselves, <laughs> their righteous deeds. But in the sight of God, Isaiah recognized that even those are filthy rags. Our best moments, our best intentions, our best execution, the days or week that we, we think that we're making some sort of progress against sin, Isaiah says that righteousness, those good deeds, that progress before God is filthy rags. Thomas Watson in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, speaks of those 
who are so good that they scorn God's offer of mercy. And he goes on, indeed, these are often in the worst condition. Their morality undoes them. He says, morality shoots short of heaven. A moral man is but the old Adam dressed in fine clothes. Even our righteous deeds as filthy rags. As Luther says, the works of man always seem attractive and good, but are likely to be mortal sins. You see, even our best efforts, the stuff that we would consider good before God makes no progress, even if perfect in execution, tainted always by motivation. This is one of the reasons why during Advent, our confession of sin gets so broad and so particular and perhaps so uncomfortable we're pretty good at noting our egregious sins. Those we can remember. When we think about our own sin problems, a few probably just pop into your head. (laughs) Those things that keep coming up. But I think we often forget the more insidious and perhaps more dangerous ways in which we sin against God. Sure, we can stand before God and it says, as it pertains to theft, I am righteous. And yet, as we admitted this morning, greedily and against charity, we have grasped our possessions and scarcely, if at all, have given them to those in need. Have you stolen? You might say, no, but God has often called out the thievery of his own people by looking to their poor. Says, yes, you are are thieves. How do I know? Because the poor go hungry because there are unmet needs around you while you are full. We find ourselves guilty, but it's not just falling short of sins of commission and omission that Isaiah mentions here is the reality that we so often trust in the things we get right. And maybe you don't think that's so, but we do this whenever we fool ourselves into thinking that the problem is out there. The easiest thing for us to do is to look to the world outside and call upon God to remedy those problems. And then there really is problems. I don't want to minimize that. This world is not as it should be. And that is very, very clear. But like Isaiah, our lament must not stop at those externals. We must realize that we are not as we should be. That as we confess week after week, that there is no health in us. And so many of our earthly longings are just evidence of this reality. The new car, the new job, the new season of life, carefully considered just reveal that we are not content with what God has provided for us. That we are not content with where he has placed us, the vocations and work that he has given us to do that we are not seeking our joy and fulfillment in him alone. I mean, yeah, maybe we don't look like meth addicts on skid row, but like an addict, we long for the next hit, for that next thing that will make us happy. We fill our shelves with the stuff of future landfills and garage sales, filling the pantheons of our hearts with gods that just never seem to deliver. We too are in ruin. 
And according to Isaiah, this is true of us on our best days. Welcome to Advent. You're dismissed. Don't leave. The world is not as it should be, but we are not as we should be. And Advent really is a time to consider these things, to consider how we have contributed to the mess that we find ourselves in. But the goal is not to stop there, but to consider that though there is no remedy inside of us, that though there is no remedy in the earth as we know it, that God has provided remedy by stepping into this world as we know it. So first we see Isaiah longing for justice and then moving inward in this personal lament. Finally, we find Isaiah finding a father. Verse eight, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Isaiah realizes that even on his best days, his deeds are unacceptable before God. It leaves him hopeless. It leaves Israel helpless. It leaves all of us in a place of great need. But Isaiah also recognizes that this helplessness and this place of great need is the prerequisite for God's salvation. For God will not turn away those who call upon him in truth. I think one of the difficulties and one of the beauties about passages like this and so many passages in the prophets that tell us about this great day of the Lord, this great day of judgment that is to come where God will come and take care of unrighteousness. Is there, they're a little bit like a, a transparency and I, I'm going to date myself a little bit to some of you, but if you can remember back to the days of cassettes and $1.25 gasoline and the days when every classroom had this great light source that lit through a transparent media and cast the image up onto the wall and the wonderful technology, which some of you are looking like at me like I'm crazy. It was robust technology. One of the helpful things you could do with this wonderful technology is you could take multiple transparencies and place them atop one another. And as they cast onto the, law, onto the wall, you would see one single thing. And yet they're showing you two different transparencies, two different realities. Well, as we come to our text this morning, it seems odd that if Isaiah knows that not only are the nations the problem, but he himself is the problem, it would seem strange indeed for God or for Isaiah to call upon God to rend the heavens and come down to come and do things unexpected. I mean, Isaiah would know that this appearing would not be good news. Well, as the course of history unfolds, and if we look at Isaiah closely, we can see that as we look at this image of the great day of the Lord, when God will rend the heavens, what we're really seeing is two transparencies stacked on top of one another two appearings. 
Yes, God will rend the heavens and come down and he will bring forth a fiery judgment, a day that we are called to be prepared for. But before that day, God will tear open the heavens and he will come down just as Isaiah prophesied. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God rends the heavens and comes down just as Isaiah prays. And he does something that no one would expect. He takes to himself human form. The word becomes flesh to dwell among his people. And Jesus comes and will live a life of true obedience of true waiting on the Lord, of true righteousness. Jesus will remember his father and his father's law in every way. Jesus really does come to be the Psalm 1 man that we sang about. And he comes to those that are wearing polluted garments, garments made up of their works of supposed righteousness. And Jesus takes to himself those sinful clothes and is pleased to clothe you with his righteousness. As Paul writes, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us might be fulfilled in you. God does not lower his standard of righteousness in order to save you. But for those who call upon him in truth, he lowers his very self. And that is the unexpected reality of Christmas that we, we long to celebrate. That Jesus, fully God and fully man, comes not to be served, but to serve, to humble himself, even to death on the cross. As we sang this morning, how deep the father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Though by sight, as Paul recognizes in Romans, we remain in these bodies of death, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not by sight, but by faith. And because you are in Christ, when he does rend the heavens on that last day, even that will be good news. For you will be found righteous by trusting in his son. We can long for that day. We can pray for that day. We can look, for the, look to the world around us and even, even look at our own brokenness and cry out to God, rend the heavens and come down, make this right. For he will come to work for his own. He will come to vindicate you who have faith in his son. And we can know that for sure this day because he has already done so by coming and working on your behalf in his son, Jesus Christ. And for those found in him, not by works of the law, but by calling on the name 
of the Lord in truth, you will be saved on that day. And so here in this life of Advent, we wait. We wait to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus in a few weeks, but we also wait for this whole life, longing for Christ's final return. We wait in a world that is not as it should be. We wait as people who are not as we should be, but we don't wait without hope. For you have this sure and certain promise that when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together.